And it is six o'clock, so I just wanted to say welcome and thank everyone for attending tonight's first Connected Conversation, hosted by the Idaho Humanities Council. This conversation will be hosted by me, Doug Exton, a program officer here at the IHC. Joining me here this evening is Dr. Jennifer Stevens from Stevens Historical Research Associates. If you have any questions during her presentation, please utilize the Q&A feature. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the research that's preoccupied me for the last several years and some, um, some work that I've been doing under both the National Endowment for the Humanities grant as well as a grant from the Boise City Arts and History Department, um, both of whom have been very supportive of the work that I've been doing. So I actually have some new ideas I'm testing out on, um, on some of you tonight. Um, and then I know that there are a couple people on the call, um, a for another former student, um, who's probably heard some of this before. So um, hopefully some of the new material um, will catch your eye and uh, some of the new thoughts I have about this. So the name of the talk, and I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen now, is This Ain't Going to Be No Lunch Bucket Town, or This Ain't Going to Be a Lunch Bucket Town. I didn't actually have him on record um, when I got that quote, which I'll tell you about in a little while. But this is um, a, a discussion today about urban identity and how it's shaped, and in particular, how Boise's urban identity has been shaped over the last 100 years or so and how it's changed. Um, and I'm gonna start by saying that um, Boise's identity today, which is, um, I think many, probably everybody on the call would agree, is represented by sort of this recreational friendly, outdoor quality of life goal thing that we've got going on. Um, it's reflected in our city's current planning documents. Um, but that, that identity that we have today, I'm gonna tell you my opinion, is both a story of loss as well as one of resilience. Um, the loss that it represents is the loss of the city's rich industrial past, and that's mostly what I'm gonna talk to you about today. And it's also a loss of the people to whom that past belonged. Um, and of course, the story of resilience is the one of choosing a new identity, the one that we're all living with today that can carry the community into the future. So there are typically two key drivers of a city's identity. The first is its setting and surroundings. So the things that a city can't really do anything about, but typically are the things that drove its, its birth. Things like rivers, lakes, mountains, ports, forests, minerals, etc. Um, the second, though, is what a city and its leaders, um, both elected leaders as well as citizen activists, do with those surroundings and what they make of them. And so the Boise of today is quite different in terms of what it's made of those, those um, natural resources than the Boise of 1860. Now, that's probably not surprising to any of you. A lot of things have changed over the last 160 years. Um, major technology changes, cars to airplanes to computers. Um, but there's more to Boise's identity changes than what happened at a national and global scale. There were people in this town who made a choice about what we were going to be and what we were going to portray we were to the nation and beyond. Um, and the choices that city leaders and citizen activists have made have had long-term impacts on both the profile of our city as well as the demographics of the people who have chosen to stay here, those who have chosen to leave here, and those who have chosen to emigrate from other places for the jobs that we offer. 
So I'm going to talk today, um, and I probably have put, tried to pack too much into the talk already, but I'll try to fly through it pretty quickly. And we're going to talk about that transition, the transition of our identity from industrial city, um, which a lot of you probably don't know much about, to what I'm going to call today's green city, and why the leaders, our elected leaders in particular, um, might not have wanted Boise to be a lunch bucket town with blue collar workers, and instead sought sort of this white collar identity that has had really important and far-reaching racial and socioeconomic implications, um, some of which I'm still very much in the process of researching and learning about. So, um, the genesis of this project, just very quickly, there's a yellow arrow here in the corner that points to um, what was used to be known as the Gate City Steel Site. And um, I was sitting at a Planning and Zoning Commission hearing um, back in 2016, and I sit on the Planning and Zoning Commission, when developer Bill Clark came along and said he wanted to build uh, 67 houses on this little spot right here. And just to orient everybody, this is um, the municipal golf courses right here. Uh, the old Idaho Penn and the Idaho State Archives, some of my favorite places, are right here. And Table Rock is right here as well. And so Bill Clark came in front of planning and zoning and he said, I want to build these houses on the old Gate City Steel site. Now, I'm a, I'm a historian of Boise, certainly, but I'm also, um, I do a lot of work in industrial history around the country, and I'm an, uh, an environmental historian, and I had never heard of the old Gates City Steel site. I was quite surprised that there was such a thing, and it really piqued my curiosity, and um, I, was, I was perplexed, wondering where on earth all the remnants of this Gates City Steel site were, um, and how I had grown up in this town and never known that there was such a thing there. So before uh, Mr. Clark's development went up, um, which is still in the midst of being built, but um, is definitely, it doesn't look like this anymore today, this is what the site looked like. So this is sort of an, what I call an in-between time, right? Between the time that the Gate City Steel site got torn down in the 1980s, actually it burned down, um, and the time that um, the developer began building houses here. And I was really quite, again, curious about what else I might not know about Boise. <laughs> um, I, you know, I had always sort of assumed that Boise had always been about um, fishing and hiking and, and boating and camping, but I began to question Boise's urban identity and wonder what else had been erased um, in the process of greenwashing Boise. This is what I knew before I started this project. I knew what a lot of you probably know, which is the history of um, Boise agriculture. And a lot of this probably won't be very new or surprising to you. Um, the state and the city were both really born out of the natural extraction possibilities that this valley had to offer. Um, so of course, Boise is surrounded by the foothills and the Boise River, and the river really was the driver of the city's founding. It provided water, fish, animals for fur, the fur traders came in the 19th century and the early 19th century, while the United States Army, of course, um, established a fort here several decades after that. The mountains surrounding Boise were also quite important. Um, up the river, up Boise River near Idaho City, uh, gold and other minerals of value were discovered in the early 1860s. And it was that discovery that really brought um, the first wave of, of more permanent migrants to uh, what became the city of Boise and the Treasure Valley. Um, closer to home, in the valley itself, government surveyors were um, busy surveying the land to determine um, what, basically to take inventory of it, 
to determine where people could uh, homestead and create farms. And um, in the process of doing that, they also noted that the Boise foothills were extremely valuable for grazing and that brought um, some of our um, well-known Basque immigrants here for shepherding. Um, and uh, then of course the farming started as well. Um, but it wasn't until 1902 when Congress passed the Reclamation Act that the Boise Project was born. Everything up until then was um, stop and go. I mean, there was, they had a hard time, the private entrepreneurs who wanted to build canals and take water out of the Boise River to farm um, had a hard time um, with financing those huge endeavors. And so it wasn't until 1902 when the Boise Project was born um, I'm sorry, the Boise Project wasn't born in 1902, but the Reclamation Service was born in 1902, which then ended up funding the Boise Project. Um, that farming really got off the ground in a really um, pretty major way. And um, of course, became um, the type of thing that you see here. And uh, up on the right here, uh, this picture is a photograph of, um, of some of the produce that came out of Emmett. Um, Boise, the Boise Project not only included Ararat Dam, but also the Black Canyon Dam up on the Payette River, and um, some of the major produce centers were um, in the Emmett area from that time. But of course, to deliver that water and to use the money that came from the newly created Reclamation Service, which we know today is the Bureau of Reclamation, um, we needed some people to do that work. And um, lo and behold, a company by the name of Morrison Knudsen was born. Um, out of its bid to build the New York Canal. And it was one of our first big manufacturing industrial companies um, that set the tone for what Boise would become. And excuse the street noise, my um, office is located right on Main Street and it's a lot louder than it was just a few short weeks ago. Um, so this is uh, just a picture of um, some of the workers building the New York Canal in 1912. Um, this is a, a photograph of uh, the Boston and Idaho dredge up in Idaho City from 1914. And you can imagine with Boise's um, isolation geographically that um, transporting a machine like this from, say, Salt Lake City or Portland or Seattle would have been quite a feat. Now, I don't know 100% for sure that this was built in Boise, but my, my hunch is, knowing what I know about Boise's industrial history now, that at least some of the parts were forged, in fact, right here in our valley by companies like the Baxter Foundry, um, and then later, um, maybe a Gate City Steel might have fabricated some of the, some of the um, machine parts that were required in things like dredges. Um, and then, of course, in addition to agriculture and mining, we also had a major timber industry. And um, the timber was utilized for many things, but um, some of its biggest and most important uses were for um, propping up the mine tunnels, um, which required an immense amount of wood. And then, of course, um, forging the railroad ties that would bring goods, and, uh, goods in and out of the Boise area. And so the forests surrounding uh, Idaho City became an important site of the timber industry. And of course, what happens when you start extracting all of these natural resources, whether they're water or uh, minerals or timber, you begin to have to serve those natural resource extraction sectors. And so as I already mentioned, Morrison Knudsen was one of the um, first companies that was born sort of in this era. But we also had uh, 
an iron foundry, which was situated, which I'll show you pictures of in a minute, situated right at the base of the Boise Depot that we know today and love so much. So a really nasty kind of dirty iron foundry was right there. Gate City Steel, situated right on the Boise River at the end of Warm Springs. Um, many lumber mills um, and lumber yards that were scattered throughout the city, which I'll show you in a bit. Of course, quarries, um, many slaughterhouses um, that dumped their wastes into the Boise River, which was sort of an industrial sink, if you will. Um, machine shops like the Yankee Machine Shop and many more. And all of these industries were really uh, founded to serve the natural resource extraction sectors. And so this, what you'll see is um, the underlying, this is what's called a Sanborn map. It's an insurance map uh, done by the Sanborn Insurance Company that used to go out to cities and um, truly inventory every single building within a city limits so that they would know what their fire risk was. Um, and so it's a really nice uh, way to do historical research. And what you can see here, this is upstream the Boise River. This here where I'm circling the yellow, uh, the yellow square is um, the original Boise Platt, so the very core of downtown. And this down here is what we know today as Simplot, Esther Simplot Park and the Whitewater Park. So you can see all along the river we had slaughterhouses, we had heavy construction, sand and gravel, not all at once, of course, but in the course of the first 50 years or so this, of the 20th century, these are the types of things that um, built up in the Boise area, just right outside the Boise downtown core. Um, of course, the rail came directly through the middle of, city, of the city and um, served all of these various industrial interests. Um, upstream, we had a lumber mill brick and tile company up in what we know today as Harris Ranch, so back in the um, in the Barber Valley. Um, but you can see there was really, you know, in the in a really small area, about four miles um, from one end to the other, we had quite a lot of very serious industry, heavy, fairly heavy industry in, in the downtown Boise area. And this is just another uh, more modern view, just so to get you situated. Again, Lucky Peak is up here. Um, this is one of those Sanborn insurance maps, um, a close-up of Gate City Steel site right there, um, a lime, uh, sand and, and lime company here, and um, some other neat um, mapping representations. What am I doing on time? 6.15. So this is, um, I'm just going to show you a few photographs here, so you can um, just get a feeling of what of what things look like. I think people tend to do best with photos um, in terms of really trying to imagine a place. So um, this is actually the Bill Clark housing site, if you can believe it. This was um, the Boise Stone Company, and I don't have a precise date on this photo, but my guess is, and I, I know Terry and a few other people from Boise Arts and History are here, my guess is that this is about 1908 or 1910, they may want to weigh in on that and tell me what they think. Um, I didn't have a specific date, but this is the site before it became the Boise Gate, the Gate City Steel Factory. Um, and then here it is in its next iteration. This is the, it was initially called the Olson Manufacturing Company um, before it was purchased by a company in Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, called the Gate City Steel Company. And that company actually also had a facility over in Pocatello. So this is a, a picture of the Olson Manufacturing Company. And this is the same site again, 
but uh, when it had become Gate City Steel. This was probably taken in about 1955, would be my guess. Now, the Gate City Steel Company made, uh, they didn't make steel. So, um, you know, you may be thinking about Bethlehem um, and those sorts of big steel, Pittsburgh companies, things like that. They were not actually making steel at this factory. What they were doing was they were fabricating products. And so um, the things that came out of this, this uh, factory or this fabrication plant were some really important inventions. Um, it, one of the things that's been great about this project and uh, one of the things that I did with the grant from Arts and History, the Boise Arts and History Department, was to do several oral histories with people who worked in some of these places. And there was a um, there was one interview, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a quote from a, a one a little bit later in the presentation. But um, one of the interviews told me about uh, one of the interviewees told me about a machine that he made. Um, he was it turned out he was actually an engineer. It was Hugh Hartman, and um, he had a gentleman come to him from Ontario, actually a Japanese farmer who had uh, been in the um, in the camps in Minidoka. And when he, when the war was over after World War II, he went out to Ontario, Oregon and started a farm. And he came into uh, the, the Gate City Steel Plant and he asked Hugh Hartman to make him a very specialized sort of tractor implement that he could put on the back of his tractor that would, um, I forget specifically what it was, but it had something to do with picking strawberries. And so, um, you know, it was this massive machine that, that Mr. Hartman um, made and designed in this factory. And um, it really was, you know, it never was made again in that particular case, but um, people would come here for um, specific implements they needed to serve, again, those natural resource extraction industries. Um, this is a photograph of the Baxter Foundry that I told you about. So um, this is probably standing right um, at the, probably around the train station or just right underneath the train station. So very different than what it looks like today. Um, this is an aerial shot of, believe it or not, a Ford auto assembly plant that we had. This is um, Main and Fairview Avenues. You'll probably recognize that, that sort of area right there. And of course the Boise River long before it was channeled the way it is today. And then here's a photograph of um, one of the lumber, lumber yards of which there were many in the city. So I wanna make sure that I leave enough time to talk about um, the transition, right? So um, here's just another, another listing of, of some of the many industries that we have right downtown. Um, and one of the things, as I've been giving these talks over the last couple of years about this research, I have really come across some wonderful people in the city, some citizens who have given me leads on some really good people to talk to as well as um, uh, companies that I may not know about yet. So if, if any of this looks familiar or you have a relative who worked here um, at any of these places or some other place, please be sure to send me that information. And um, Doug, I'm sure, can get you my, my, my contact information because I'd love to talk to them. Um, so I just wanted to give you this one excerpt from the Hugh, another excerpt from the Hugh Hartman um, interview. And he was telling me that in addition to the crazy, um, oh, sorry about that, um, of the strawberry picking implement that he made, he also did something that ended up becoming um, an important patented invention. So 
one of the things that the, he used to go out to the farmers, um, in addition to them coming into him, he would go out and say, you know, what sort of things do you guys need to make your life a little bit easier? And I, I guess when you used to harvest beets, you used to take a beet in your hand um, and you would have a knife and you would singularly have to sort of top the, top the beet one at a time. And um, Mr. Hartman was, was very excited because he told me that one of the things he designed at Gate City Steel was something he called a, ro a roto beater. Um, and so they could take this thing out into the field and do four rows at a time. So it was a really important entrepreneurial um, invention that came out of our little Boise, Idaho that we never think of um, as industrial. So, so what's changed? Well, a lot. <laughs> um, this is a, one of my favorite, favorite images that I have found in all the research that I've done. This is, comes from an Idaho Power Annual Report from the 1960s. And you can see um, that what we really thought of as progress in the 1960s might be a little different than what um, we think of as progress today. Not, not entirely, I mean, some of it's still certainly accurate, but this was really the dominant narrative. Um, processed foods, factories, um, you know, cut down logs. And this, was, this really is a, a moment in time before the dominant environmental narrative sort of took hold of the country and took hold of our city. Um, so I like to use that as sort of a, a representative of what, um, what Boise and what Idaho um, had been, certainly, um, in the years before that. But today, we get off the plane in, in the Boise airport when we can travel back in the good old days, and um, we are greeted with signs that say, making Boise the most livable city in the country. And so, you know, my research has really been about trying to get from one to the other and explaining uh, and understanding myself how we got to the, from that one thing, the industry and the, um, you know, the different factories along the river to what you see here on this particular slide. Um, and part of it, of course, is the growth of the environmental movement. Um, in the 1960, we had a, obviously a very volatile um, decade in the 1960s which had to do with many things, but one of which was a rising and an increasing understanding of our natural environment and appreciation for the natural environment. Um, this, this slide in front of you right now, though, talks a little bit more specifically about how this played out in Boise. Um, so I'll say, um, I, I say this a lot, and I say it sort of um, with, with love in my heart, Boise tends to be about 10 years behind <laughs> on a lot of things. Um, and my students have certainly heard me say that in the past. And we were very late to the party when it came to adopting our first comprehensive plan. By the time Boise adopted its first comprehensive plan in 1963, um, boy, you know, urban planning had been around for decades at that point. So we were definitely really late to the party. And, um, it also happened to be the 1960s um, was sort of the second decade of what many of you on the call I'm sure have heard of called urban renewal. And urban renewal, um, for anybody who has studied cities or studied the 50s and the 60s, um, those two words often leave a bad taste in our mouths. Um, it usually, it often meant the destruction of neighborhoods. It often meant the construction of freeways through lower income and minority neighborhoods. It meant the tearing down of historic buildings. Um, it was not, uh, not an era that um, urban planners are very proud of today. 
And so here we were, Boise, adopting our first comprehensive plan, sort of in the middle of all of this, right? And, um, but what was interesting is that that comp planner um, in a small little, small little line in the comp plan um, that he wrote, he said something like, you should really focus on the river. And that's really, that could be a really neat amenity. So sure enough, Boise City Council um, hired a, a local planner to design the Boise River Greenbelt Comprehensive Plan. Um, and that was adopted in 1969. Um, at the same time that that was happening, though, we were, uh, what, what this article here on the right says, tearing our city down. Um, much of what we were doing in our comprehensive plan was getting rid of the old and trying to build new. Um, and actually, it, many of the policies of that time period um, were tearing down buildings simply to build surface parking, something that would be uh, unthinkable today and, and something we, we try not to do. <laughs> Um, but at the same time that we were tearing down the city, um, we were also building it up and really focusing on uh, this greenbelt. And that was really one of the first um, things that the city did that indicated uh, elected leaders' decision, um, along with citizen activists, no question about it, that the city could adopt this new identity. Um, there were some other things that happened during these five, this 10-year period, too, from 1963 to the time that the first section of the Greenbelt opened in 1975. Um, HP, Hewlett-Packard, moved here in 1973. Um, and then just a couple years after the Greenbelt opened, Micron was founded. So we've got this confluence of factors happening during this time period. From 1963 to 1975, we have environmentalism rising, right? We have um, the adoption of environmental laws that are making it very hard for some of those industries that were situated here in Boise to continue dumping their waste into the river because of the Clean Water Act. Um, and we also have now zoning ordinances in the city of Boise that are pushing industry out to the outskirts. So you've got this environmental movement going, you've got comp planning moving up and um, the city taking greater notice of what we can do with zoning and comprehensive planning. We've got industry moving out and we have an embrace of the Greenbelt and eventually the river and eventually the foothills too. And so we sort of begin to see this morphing of industry moving out and an emphasis on amenities that are more attractive to, not necessarily more attractive to, but certainly um, cater to white collar workers who have more leisure time. Um, those people are moving in and we're as a city beginning to embrace the kinds of things that those white collar knowledge workers um, really move to a place for. And so, I, you know, I, I believe that the Boise River Greenbelt was actually um, part of urban renewal, which is, is sort of a weird thing to say. It's not, um, it's, I think that um, I'd be interested to hear what some of you think about that. But I think you can't look at the rise of the Greenbelt and the rise of our green identity in the city without um, understanding the context within which um, those things were being embraced. Um, so I've got one more little timeline here that, that sort of shows you on the top the rise of the green identity and sort of our embrace as a city of parks um, all the way up to the Whitewater Park construction. And on the bottom, um, industry, you know, that started the mining boom and the frontier town. 
moving through increased manufacturing uh, from the 1910s through the 1950s. And then that passing of the zoning code and the comp plan and the, of course, arrival of the modern environmental movement. And so I think it's really interesting to look at these two things together side by side and sort of trace their, um, their march through time together to understand what the relationship is between the two of them and try to understand why, and this is something I'm still trying to understand, why there's so little trace of our industrial past left in our city and why so much of it has in fact been greened over in this sort of striving for a new green identity. Um, so um, I will lastly show you what, what the same map looks like today to sort of um, show you where you know where all those slaughterhouses and um, iron foundries and um, steel factories and such were are now green belts city parks um, trails throughout the foothills where some of the slaughterhouses used to be etc so we have really greened over a lot of that blue industrial past that uh, we had and that defined our city for many years um, and then Finally, I'll just leave you with some of the questions I'm still doing research on. Um, this is certainly not a, a complete project by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I'm, I'm, these are some of the things I'm still asking and I'm really looking forward to your questions and looking forward to um, your thoughts on some of this. So thank you so much for having me. Alrighty, thank you for that wonderful presentation. We will now be taking questions and it looks like we have one right here. It is saying, doo, doo, doo. can you speak to the uh, corp corporatization of agriculture and the loss of small farms and food processing plants? Many blue collar jobs were lost to this economic shift led by large scale potato production drive, driven by Simplot. Also, how does Boise's experience of losing blue-collar jobs mirror the U.S.'s loss of those same types of jobs? Those are great questions. Um, so I can't necessarily speak. I, I haven't done much research on the corporatization of farming. Um, that's kind of a, a whole different research topic, I guess, and certainly extremely relevant to what happened in our own valley. But I, I can't unfortunately um, speak much to it because I just I haven't done any research about it. I can address uh, a little bit the, um, the second question, which is how the loss of blue collar jobs in Boise mirror the United States um, of those same types of jobs. So the framework of this whole research project is to try to understand deindustrialization in the West um, so much of the scholarship that has been done on deindustrialization has been really focused on the Rust Belt, which tends to go from, um, you know, the Buffalo area in New York down through the Midwest, Detroit, and um, those sorts of areas. And um, what really struck me when I, you know, started digging into Gate City Steel was how little there was to, to find out about the West and deindustrialization in the West. And... Um, a couple of my students, Doug, and then I, another student was signed up, um, have, have been helping me. We've been running urban field schools at Boise State University, um, where urban, 
urban studies students um, have been doing lab work to try to understand exactly the kind of question you asked, which was, you know, is Boise's experience can we use the model, the scholarship model, and the findings for deindustrialization in the Rust Belt to apply to places like Boise? Or is it, or is Boise different? Is the West different? Is the Intermountain West different? And so my students have studied both Seattle and then um, we were supposed to study Oakland, California this mm -hmm. spring and, and go on a trip there to do some field work. But unfortunately, um, as my family likes to say, we shrug and we say, COVID. So unfortunately that happened. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, I mean, that's a very long winded answer to what should be a simple question. I think that, um, again, we were a little behind the time. So um, the loss of blue collar jobs in one factory towns, and I, use, I don't really mean necessarily one factory, but like if you look at Pittsburgh, um, which was really dominated by the steel industry, you know, their losses were much bigger than Boise's losses um, and, and much, much more painful. And they also happened earlier. So um, there are differences, but certainly what I have found is that just trend-wise, um, Boise's losses do, and, and the trends that we see here do mirror um, other places. Just sometimes difference are, differences are in volume um, or in timing. Another question that just came in is, during your research, what would you consider the most surprising industry that existed in Boise's history? Hmm. You know, I think what, uh, what has probably been just the most surprising, and, and maybe it doesn't surprise you because now that you've heard it, you kind of go, oh yeah, well, of course that makes sense. But to find out how much machinery was actually being made here in Boise was, was surprising. So um, there was the Gate City Steel Company, but then there was also Pacific Steel. We also had a U.S. Steel, um, a very small U.S. Steel representative here, or representation here. Um, but then we also had machine shops, fabrication shops. So it wasn't just Gate City. It was also Yankee. Um, some of the other names are sort of escaping me right now, but we had, um, you know, quite a lot of machines and tools being forged, made right here in Boise. And I think that was the most surprising thing just because, um, you know, I think when you live in, a, in an auto oriented world, you just, you forget how, that it wasn't so easy to move those things mm -hmm. um, back in the day. And so, um, you know, to, to learn that we had to make some of those things here and, and have a way to make those tools available locally was probably the most you know, surprising thing. Actually, going off of that, I wanted to ask a question. Um, how much do you think Boise's isolation played into the amount of industry that we have as a city, or we had? Yeah, I think it was really critical. Um, I think the fact that we were so far removed from um, any other urban area, I mean, I think we are still the most isolated um, city in the country, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so I think that that was a really important important thing. And in fact, when I interviewed the folks um, at these various places, that was what they said too. I mean, I think that they were able to um, be good salesmen. A lot of them were salesmen that I spoke with. Um, it, they said it was very easy to sell things because there was no transportation cost, you know, so they could offer things at a cheaper price um, than if they had to, 
if these farmers or these other, you know, miners or whatever had to buy these things from out of state, they would have to transport them. So I think that that was an important driver, the fact that we were, that we were isolated. Ah, I see some good questions. <laughs> so this one is um, about the Reclamation Act harnessing water and yielded hydropower. It was common in the late 1800s and early 1900s that manufactured gas was common for gas lighting. Did Boise have a manufactured gas plant? So, um, I cannot give you much information about it, but I believe that we had one right at the foot of the Ninth Street Bridge. And it's possible that Amy Fackler, or maybe if Terry's on the um, call, they might be able to verify that. But um, it was, there was something, um, but I have not found much, if any, real information about it, except for seeing it on one of those Sanborn maps. Yeah, and I can attest to that. I've definitely seen that. I want to say it was Boise Gaslighting Co. Mm -hmm. the name of it. But I, Thank you, Doug. What can I say? Um, then Amy actually asked mm -hmm. if there was a union presence in any of the industries. I am really glad you asked that question. So one of the, that's maybe been um, the biggest surprise and one of the most fun things about historical research, and I suppose any research, is that you, you don't always know where it's going to go. And one of the most interesting things that's happened is that I have realized that this story may very well be a story about how we became a right-to-work state. Um, and um, so the answer is yes, there were some unions, um, but they were fairly rapidly dispensed with. So particularly at Gate City, there were two strikes, um, one in 1966, I believe. I might have the dates wrong, and then one a couple years later. Um, the people that I have interviewed from the plants um, were absolutely 100%. I haven't found anybody yet who was pro-union. The people that I have talked to, and I'm not saying it's a representative sample, but were very much anti-union. And so even, um, even back then, there was quite an effort to keep the unions out of these shops. And so one of the things that um, is a new avenue of research that I've just barely scratched the surface of is trying to figure out what that, what that story is. And, and Savannah Willits, who's on the call with us um, and is one of my former students, actually helped me with a little bit of that research last summer. Um, and she worked on the, the National Endowment for the Humanities grant with me. And so um, I'm hoping to, to have that be a, a, a chapter of whatever this turns into, because that's definitely an important part of the story. And I think that'll be a really interesting chapter to read. And we do also have a, our first question in the Q&A. It is, I understand fish canneries were common along the Boise River because of the salmon runs. Have you determined the size of this industry? I have not, actually. And it looks like maybe Mr. Pettyjohn knows how to answer that question. Is that what I'm seeing on the Q&A? Or am oh, I no, not understanding? No, that's just because I clicked the answer live. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I actually, um, I have not seen, and I'm, I'd be curious, Rick, where specifically those were, because I have not seen evidence of those. Um, so I would be pretty interested in knowing more about that, if you know. 
We also have a question. To what extent did Carol McGregor's book, Prosperity and Isolation, inform your research? So I have read Carol's book, um, but uh, to be honest with you, it has not uh, done, I mean, most of this research has been from research that I've done over the years. And so, um, you know, it's a fabulous book, but hasn't really formed the basis of um, what I've been, what I've been working on. Another one that came through is the Land Use Planning Act published by the League of Women Voters in the early 70s played an important role in transforming, perhaps deindustrializing the central areas of the city. I guess yes. that's more of a talking point than a question, but. Well, and Gary's exactly, Gary's exactly right. So the League of Women Voters was um, actually critical. They held a really wonderful conference in 1978 Two, I think it was called, or I think it was um, called As We Grow or How We Grow or something like that. Um, and in fact, the League of Women Voters um, around the country at that time, in particular in the West, in Portland, in Boise, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, um, was absolutely critical in these growth discussions. Um, and they are kind of all over the historical record in the early 1970s trying to educate voters um, about, about land use planning, certainly, but also about questions in Portland, for instance, about the, the um, urban growth boundary and um, other types of questions. So yes, I think um, the League of Women Voters, and in fact, this is a, um, another project that I, that I wrote on extensively about a, about a decade ago, was all about women's roles in, um, in urban growth and in um, the preservation of open space in urban areas. And so um, I'm glad you brought that up and the League of Women Voters is, they're still my heroes. They did a lot of really great work and still do. What would you say is the most impactful industry Boise has had on both our old identity and our new identity? Oh. Boy, you could argue for a lot of different ones. Um, I think, you know, you, you really could. I, could. I could sit here and make an argument for about three different ones, but I guess I'll stick with agriculture. Um, you know, the, the irrigation and the, the so-called reclamation of the West, um, I think it can't be overlooked as, as a really important um, driver of settlement and um, the history of this area. And so, you know, again, even though the, the initially that was an extracted, sort of an extractive industry, I guess you could call it, um, you know, it, it inspired, you, you know, the creation of these tools that I talked about. Um, but I also think that um, there is some conservation that has come from the agricultural industry, actually. And I think that some of the, and this is going to be a little bit of a nuanced argument, but I think that, um, you know, some of the, the water use that the agricultural industry has made, um, both in taking water out of the river to apply to our fields, but also then the return of that water to our river um, with pesticides and stuff, those, that, um, that series of water use and water, um, uh, yeah, water use, I guess I'll just leave it at that, 
has really um, had an impact on um, Boise in particular because it, you know it's all related to the Boise River and it goes from back in the day when we settled this this valley for farming um, to today when we need that river for the things that the amenities that drive our identity our identity today and so um, I think agriculture you know can't be overlooked as being at least one of the top two most important um, sort of industries that we've that has shaped our identity here in the city. And then how do you think our new tech in green identity will impact us in the future? Given your research of Boise's mm. Well, I think what we're struggling with now is um, is trying to understand how to balance the, you know, we, we've created this wonderful, I mean, I, I'm probably the big, I'm probably not the biggest Boise lover on the call because I bet there's a lot of them out there. Um, I am certainly a huge love. I, this city is like my, my heart. But I think what, we, what we've done by making it such a place that so many people want to come and it's so popular and we're written up on every list that there is imaginable, um, what we've done is we've, you know, we've done that old thing called loving a resource to death or loving a place to death. And so what we're really struggling with now is how to balance um, the preservation of these places. The, you know, the, the, we've built a green belt, for instance, right up in the floodplain. Makes it really hard for us to um, preserve our floodplain and restore the ecology of, of our river. And so, um, and the, and the same is true for the foothills. So I think that we're really, you know, as a city having to struggle with how to preserve our resources that we have sort of um, opportunistically exploited to get people to love, right? And the question is, does love of recreation lead necessarily to love of ecology and love of preservation? And I think that's sort of the biggest thing that um, as our identity continues to be this this green recreation quality of life thing, we're gonna to need to, as a city, make sure that we you know, fall on the side of, um, of preserving those things and preserving those resources. Yeah, I definitely really, really agree with you on that. Um, in my personal work with you, ex you know, exploring the green belt, definitely, would say that we have loved the green belt and our amenities to death on that. Yeah. We have another question that just came in based on your, based on our industrial history, what types of modern industries would be a good fit with our landscape? Thank you, Alex. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I will say I'm a big fan of um, green industry. So um, I look at opportunities for solar, um, opportunities for, um, you know, I think that we can have green, green um, tourism here. And I think that um, if we do it sensitively, I think that those are two huge and really important economic um, things that we could do for our valley. So I think those are um, important, but you know, we, we do have to figure out the farming too, because we all do still need to eat. And so, um, you know, I think ag needs to continue to be an important part of our valley. It, it remains part of our, our past, an important part of our past. And we don't, we certainly don't want to let that go. And so we need to be careful not to eat all of our farmland up 
and um, and maintain um, you know our farms uh, such such as they are. Uh, shouting back out to one of the earlier uh, to Claria, I guess it was, who made the point about corporatization of farming. Um, you know, obviously, I, I think I'd like to get back to small farmers and or independent farmers at least. But I do think that ag is an important industry that needs to um, be protected in our valley. Yeah, I feel like having the green energy and the green tourism would fit really well with our current identity. And it almost seems like it would be a natural transition into a new industry for us, given mm -hmm. the way Boise has gone and is currently going. Yeah, definitely. While we wait for another question to come on in, is there anything else you would like to enlighten us on with Boise's industrial past? Not really. I mean, again, I would just ask that um, if anybody knows, has relatives who ever worked in these industries, I'm still um, doing research, although I am finally writing some of it up. There's an essay coming out in a, um, a book about Western rivers and this struggle between um, whether or not uh, you know increasing recreation and stuff hurts or harms our resources um, and that book is um, coming from um, a guy who's editing it from Gonzaga he's a professor at Gonzaga so I'm writing some of this up um, and that essay will be coming out in the next year or so um, but the research continues so <laughs> and we do have a question coming from Kathy I will be taking you off of mute you might be muted yourself. Alrighty, it looks like you are completely unmuted. Feel free to ask your question. So I was wondering, um, all the industries that were here earlier, when uh, did they did they move someplace else, or did they just become obsolete? Um, so that's my mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> That's I a great question. Wonder, I, yeah, I, yeah, no, I didn't set her up for that, I swear. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's a really good question. So there's a little bit of both. Um, one of the things that I want to study and which uh, we, we haven't gotten around to doing it, and Doug actually was um, maybe sometime in the future, maybe he'll come back and help me or maybe I'll have to get some other GIS student to help me out. But one of the things I really want to do is map what happened because um, my, I know that at least anecdotally, many of these factories moved out to Canyon County. Um, and so there is a, uh, you know, as you can imagine, this research gets very involved and very complicated because we're talking um, about rural-urban divide then too, and also some issues of racial and environmental justice by, by, by those sorts of big picture movements. Um, but as you know, many factories are still out in Canyon County. And um, so some of them moved um, and then some of them shut down. Um, the Ford assembly plant, for instance, that was here for a short period of time, you know, they, they consolidated and they, they went to places that were bigger and had a, had a bigger demand for cars. So that wasn't so hard to ship from. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it varied, but that's actually one of the things in the future. And I saw Jennifer Hawley asked um, about new projects um, that I'm thinking about in Boise. And that's one of the directions I want this to go is some spatial visualization 
of where some of these specific factories and companies ended up going. Um, and I'm hoping to get a second grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to help me with um, some of these, these second phases of the, of the research. Awesome, thank you for that question, Kathy. And I would like to let you know, Dr. Stevens, that I would love to work with you more and I would be happy to do some mapping work for you. <laughs> um, we do also have a question again from Amy. How do riparian rights, I think I said that correctly, fit in with agricultural mm -hmm. present and future? So um, that is a complicated question um, and I will answer it, uh, I will try to answer it very simply, which is we are a state that um, uses what's called appropriative rights. So appropriative rights, appropriative rights is how you say it slower, um, are to keep it very simple, it's first in time, first in right. So if you live adjacent to a river, um, you, you may have some right to it, but the prime right is whoever used the water first. So um, basically with uh, agrarian and agricultural past and present, um, water rights are determined by who used them first. So for instance, the Boise Project has a massive water right. Um, they filed back in when they created the project in, I think it was 1906, if I'm not mistaken, they filed with the state engineer for a water right to water, um, I can't remember what the acreage was, 100 plus thousand acres of land um, at a certain water uh, rate, so probably three acre feet per acre. And um, so nobody can take that water away. It doesn't matter if you live adjacent to it, if um, somebody has filed for all that water and there's, like right now, there, are no, there is no water in the Boise River to file on, which is hard to believe. Um, but it's pretty much totally over appropriated. And so even though you watch it flow by, <laughs> you actually don't have the right, if you live next to it, to take water out because all that water has been um, filed upon in the past and you're too late. <laughs> so um, yeah, riparian rights are um, not, not, not very, uh, they aren't useful here in Boise and in Idaho. And I know you touched on this briefly, but are there any new projects you're working on or thinking about in Boise? This one's taking a lot of my time. Um, you know, I don't, I don't work as a professor full time. And so this is, um, this is what I get to work on when I'm not doing my other project work, my client work. So um, this is kind of the big one. And I still have, um, there's a really important racial aspect to this, to this project as well, um, as well as the labor aspect that somebody asked about earlier. And so between kind of continuing down that, um, the racial aspect of this as well as, and, and what, I mean, what I mean by that is, I think that there is a really important component of constructing white, what's called constructive whiteness um, in this story. And why, why have we adopted this green identity and how does that play into our dominantly and predominantly white community that we have? And so um, between that and the, and the labor unions, those are sort of still outstanding parts of this project that need to get done. So, um, there's still, you know, this project is still ongoing. 
We have another question, and this might be our last. It says, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio area. The area became the Rust Belt in the late 60s and 70s, partly as a lot of heavy industry losing to other countries with cheap labor, especially Asia. Don't you think Boise's deindustrialization was also part of that process? Gary, I did not know you were from Cleveland. And I'm gonna blow your mind by telling you that I love Cleveland, Ohio. I have like, and my students know that. <laughs> I'm sort of obsessed with Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. There's no doubt about it that globalization um, plays an important role in this. And um, again, it's just sort of another aspect of this story that um, you know I haven't delved into and. and I may not, I mean, other than um, in sort of passing reference to, to, to recognize that that is an important part of the story. Um, but otherwise I'll, I'll, I'll die before I actually finish this. So I, <laughs> I need to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> Alrighty. So it looks like that might have been our last question for the night. I just wanted to say thank you again for doing this. All of us at the IHC are very grateful. Thank and, you. Uh, to everyone signing off, once you sign off, there should be a survey that pops up from SurveyMonkey. We would love all the feedback so we can improve our program since this was just the first time that we've done it. And we would love to have many more. We already have some more in the works, so stay tuned for that. And yeah, thank you so much for everyone that attended. And again, thank you, Dr. Stevens, for helping us with our first ever installment. It was great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all the great questions. Yeah. Good night, you guys. Take care. Good Stay night. safe.